You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together in this uh, Lord's Day. Lord, we do know that we are sinners that stand in the need of prayer. And Jesus, we know that in your kindness, you pray for us. You know us in our infirmities. You know us in our weakness. You remember us before the Father, knowing our frame, that we're just dust. Lord, you also know that the power of our surrounding culture and our world, Lord, to shape our imaginations, to shape our moral consciousness, these things are so strong and we operate, Lord, so often without any critical reflection on it, myself included. Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts and minds, Lord, to seek you, Lord, to seek to be ordered by the ways in which you construct our beings, and that, oh Lord, that you would fill us with the joy and the courage and the hope uh, to live into that, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, thank you. Um, well, it's, we, we, putting the car a little bit in reverse, we, we began... Uh, three weeks ago now, moving from the first table of the law, which is this vertical understanding of our relationship to God in terms of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your might, or loving your, the Lord your God very, very much, and recognizing that, that hor- the, the, the vertical and the horizontal function on some side of some, some kind of axis of relationality. Um, so that we love the Lord our God, but we also love our neighbors and those who relate to one another in distinct ways. In, in fact, um, one could read a certain um, portions, I would say large portions of the prophets in light of that necessary relationality between loving God and loving our neighbors, um, such that uh, the people of Israel both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, became an expert, one might say, at religious observation. They knew knew how to check the boxes off of their religious rituals. And by the way, that's not in any dismissal of the significance of those rituals in in Israel's life before the Lord. So the, the rituals mattered, but the rituals only found their significance within a larger frame of understanding as it related to their loyalty and exclusive commitment to God and their neighbor. So the prophets would come in and and say these really strong words about um, religious fidelity or or religious fastidiousness. We're going to keep to our our, our, our rituals without concern for the neighbor. That, That just didn't work. I mean, this is why you would have the prophets... And, and I, I have a colleague that would joke that if you were a priest um, in uh, ancient Israel and you looked up one um, Shabbat day or, or just a normal day of, of temple exercises and saw a prophet walking into the courtyard, they would probably mutter, mutter under their breath something like, oh crap, this is going to be a hard day, right? <laughs> um, because the prophets came in uh, to remind the people of their overarching commitments to God um, and and to their neighbor, and they would say these sort these things that are really sort of that are jarring, like just stop all that religion stuff. Um, if you're exploiting your neighbor, if you're not living into 
um, the moral imagination that I've given you in the law that has concern for the other and is not driven solely by the purpose of self-interest, if, if you're not by God's grace living into that, well then just keep all that religious stuff. I think that's what the prophets would, would say. And it's, it's a hard word. There's a reason why in our Eucharist liturgies, we just experienced this all together this morning, there's a reason why the law is announced to us as love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we respond with the proper response, which is, Lord have mercy. That that right out of the gate, we say, we recognize that we, we're, we're human, we, we're sinners, and, and we need the mercy of the Lord in, in light of both of those realities. Um, but if you'll notice, our prayers continue on in our liturgy, and they engage us in terms of now being freed from the burden of our guilt so that we can enter into this week, by God's grace, loving Him and loving our neighbors. And we go into that. And then we'll see you next Sunday and we'll ask for his mercy again. I mean, this is, this is part of the ongoing dynamic of what it means to live into mortification and vivification. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh and by God's spirit and his grace being made alive to that which he has called us to be for the sake of true human flourishing. Human flourishing in our families, human flourishings in our society, human flourishing in our church. We enter into that because that's the blessed state that God has called us to live into. And, and again, I want to frame this uh, for us before we move into this particular commandment today, because I think it's crucial to remember Psalm chapter one. Um, now, now, if you if you think of the whole, you know, this is a reduction, but so much of the history of Western thought um, is given to the question about what does it mean to be really human? What, what, where's, what, what's human nature? And is, it, is life worth living? Um, that, that's a question that Socrates would raise in the Platonic dialogues, and Aristotle in his own way, in his ethics, leaned hard into that question. It's a big question that generations of, of philosophically minded human beings have raised. What is life worth living? And if it is worth living, then how is it lived well? That's the question. And it's not a question that the Bible is uninterested in. That's what's so fascinating. The Bible's interested in that question about what does it mean to live into a blessed state or a happy state. Psalm chapter 1, right? Or Psalm 1. How blessed are those who do not walk or stand or sit in ungodliness or unrighteousness. Let's call that a mode of being that raises its hand against God and God's instructions. Um, how blessed is a person that does not stand or walk or sit with those that raise their fist against God, um, but rather their delight, um, their, their affections, not, not just the resolution of their will, I'm going to do this, but their affections are set on God's instruction. Why? I mean, just think about how, how important Psalm 1 is for our moment, really all moments in time, we, we live within certain assumptions within our culture that we don't really think critically about. It's, it's, it's hard um, to engage our own moment with, in, in a creative, in a critical, in a thoughtful way. Um, and I think what the psalmist is letting you know here in Psalm 1 is the blessed person 
um, does not find the blessed state by an active internal self-discovery or, oh boy, here we go, the belief in the myth of personal happiness as the be-end and the end-all of what it means to be human. Personal self-achievement. Rather, the psalmist says, how blessed is the person who recognizes that ungodliness exists. Um, it, it's calling you out from all corners. Um, Proverbs chapter 5, you know, that's, that's the unwisdom. Um, immorality lurks around the corners and whispers with such sweet words to come that way. Um, that's there that, and, and it exists. And yet the blessed person is the one that seeks by God's grace and his spirit to order their lives in their moral imaginations in light of what God has given us in his word. We, we are in a bona fide crisis in the West, and it's been a crisis that's been brewing for hundreds of years now, about authority. Where does authority reside? Where, where does one go to find norms? What, what's the warrant? What's the judgment for how we make sense of our world and what we are meant to be as humans. There's a crisis of authority. And you all know this. The ascendant um, idea of our moment in the West is that authority is found within the remit or the frame of the individual self. That's where I am my own authority. And, and I think what the Bible lets us know is that particular philosophy that's assumed. That's now I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. That's the social imaginary. If I can steal from Charles Taylor, that's the social imaginary that frames so much of life in the West, especially our young people, been caught by that particular imagination. Um, that to find my true self is an act of self-discovery and individual autonomy. And, and here's the hard thing. I mean, we're all going to have to think about this. We're going to have to pray through it, enter into it critically. But that's, that's um, not an option for a follower of Jesus. It's not an option. Followers of Jesus, those who are marked as those who are disciples of him along the way, recognize that the authority in our lives is external to us. It's not an act of internal self-discovery. It's external to us. Knowing that if it's just us seeking our way in this world, we will become distorted along the way. It's why we, and we talk about this render all the time of the Advent. It's why the Christian life is a life of repentance. Repentance is not a turning toward the self. Repentance is freedom from the self to see and hear God and his word for the sake of loving him and loving our neighbor. Now, uh, the, 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 the self-discovery is bondage. Now, th think of this. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, fourth and fifth century church father, identifies sin, and you think about how it just sits on our moment. He identifies and names sin as, um, and here's a, if you're looking for a Latin tattoo, this might work, in, in curvatus in se. Right? Um, I, I've, I, well, I won't go down the tattoo road. Um, uh, in curvatus in se, which means what? Being turned in on the self. So for Augustine, that's what sin is. It's being turned in on the self. We, we live in a moment right now 
that celebrates and affirms the turning in on the self. And the tradition of the church in the West has identified that basic instinct as exhibit A of the fall of sin in our lives and the effect of sin on our total being, our thinking, our willing, and our feelings. There's not one aspect of what makes you a human that's not been impacted by the fall and the reality of sin. We are broken. We're broken. And the gospel and the liberating news of the gospel is we are not consigned to our brokenness, but by the work of Christ, freed so that we can live by God's grace into the blessed state, knowing that Jesus has lived for us and he's died for us. And the freedom comes from now loving him and loving our neighbor. Um, So these are big challenges that I think Christians have to think through because we live very much in the tension of our moment. And I do believe increasingly Christian convictions about what it means to be a human and what it means to flourish will be at odds with the ascendant language that pervades our culture and our society. That's, and and I'm, I'm, here I am, I'm, like, I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm turning into an, you know, a fundamentalist again. Well, maybe so, maybe so, and I, I, that'll, that'll be okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you shall not commit adultery here. Um, you shall not commit adultery is not, not a lot said there, all right? I mean, this, this, this is the, you know, it's not expansive. Um, and so it sort of requires a, a thinking of the way in which the, this commandment is situated in a larger um, canonical or biblical frame. This is, again, thinking in terms of authority, a crisis of authority. We're normed by Christ as our Lord, and we're normed by His Word. I mean, this, this is what we... We just have to kind of gird ourselves up by God's grace to commit ourselves to that basic Christian principle of existence that is a shared principle of all Christians of all times and in all places. Now, let me, let me just kind of back up on this. Even Roman Catholics, right? I mean, so we're, I'm, I'm kind of staunchly Protestant, and if you cut me, I kind of bleed Protestant. But our Roman Catholics might have some distinction on the ways in which they understand the relationship of Scripture and tradition, but they still understand the Scriptures as authoritative even through the lens of tradition itself. The Bible plays a significant and an ultimate norming role even in, in, at Rome. So my point is, this is a basic Christian tenet of, of the faith. We recognize that the Bible, that Scripture norms moral reasoning. Um, so when we think here about thou shalt not commit adultery, we're in that realm here in the, in the commandments about what it means um, to be human, what it means to love our neighbors, and what it means to enter into God's call on us in the realm of, of human sexuality. Um, now, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery is built off of the framework of Genesis 1.27 and the Imago Dei, or the image of God. Now, I don't know if you've spent time thinking about the image of God. For something that's as important as a claim that we were made in God's image, it's remarkable how, how little the Bible expands on what that means. I, I, I wish it would just say more. Um, but it doesn't really lean hard into that, but it leaves us with a lot of 
tension, biblically and theologically speaking, about what does it mean to be made in God's image. So let, let's, let me clarify this. It's not a debate that all human beings, regardless of where they are with respect to the faith, all of your neighbors, every human being, is made in God's image. And, and that, that has built within it a recognition of the dignity of all human beings that are worthy of respect simply because they've been made in the image of God. They are image bearers. Um, what does it mean that we are made in God's image? Well, that's an alive debate. This is, the, this is one of the reasons, you know, theologians, they used to be able to get jobs, you know, thinking about stuff like this. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing, whether or not you're with a certain tradition that says, well, human beings are different than the animal world because of our rational faculties. We can think, we can make sentences, we can follow a logical train of thought. And maybe that's a part of it. Can, can I just leave you with Genesis 1.27? Here's how it works itself out in Genesis 1.27. He made them in the image of God. You know the next part. Male and female created he them. So there is something buried within the imago dei, the image of God, that assumes the complementary relationship between male and female in their unity, being made in God's image, and in their distinction. That's something that's born within the very framework of the, what we would call the biology of the sexes. So the, the, the commandment is working within that assumption, right? That our, our bodies, this is the, again the natural order, our bodies carry with them the mark of the Creator in terms of His understanding of the basic complementary relationship of the sexes, male and female, one uh, to each other. We need the other. And it's in the distinction from the other where we begin to find something of the resonance of what it means to be made uh, in the image of God. Male and female, we need one another. What does this commandment Im imply? Th this commandment implies that the act of human sexuality is to take place in the context of, of marriage. And marriage exists in the complementary relationship of male and female. And here's the remarkable um, thing about um, this commandment. And I, I, if we, I might turn back to this. We'll see how it goes. Um, the, the command to not commit adultery is not merely for the protection of your marriage. It, it's also intended for the protection of your neighbor's marriage. So this is, it's, it's, it's not just a self-interest. It's also the concern about my neighbor's marriage and not taking something that's fundamental to the ordering of society and community and playing with sex in such a way that it serves my own self-interest to be a destructive presence not only in my home but in my neighbor's home and this is this is the reality of sin and we know this right we would love it if sin were a private affair um, but it's especially in terms as it pertains to the body and, and, and the scriptures really care about our bodies. Um, it's never a private affair. It has its destructive consequences within our own home and with our, within our neighbor's uh, homes as well. If you want to read um, 
someone that I, I think really sits on top of these things in, in ways that I, I think he's very insightful. Um, uh, Wendell Berry. Who, who are my Wendell Berry people in here? Ooh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Jaber Crow, great novel. Hannah Coulter. Um, I've got sitting at home right now the collected essays of Wendell Berry. He's got wonderful essays on sex. <laughs> um, and, and, what, and his point is, this is a man who lives in Kentucky. He was the poet laureate of Kentucky for many years, I think. Um, and he sees the importance of family, sexual relations in terms of community building. That we enter into a shared commitment to each other and to, to our neighbors and to our own homes. And our, our home is not isolated from the dynamics of what's going on in other people's homes. And there's a sense of concern and care, but also a recognition that there's protection that needs to be built because there are destructive forces at work that can tear a society down um, really quickly. Um, I, I would also say, uh, by the way, his essay, um, uh, and I'm skipping ahead. So forgive me, I'm, I'll get back to some of these other issues. But his essay, uh, Marriage and the Form, is well worth your time. Um, because what uh, Wendell Berry does in that essay is he talks about the various poetic forms that exist. And the fact that these forms are stable. Um, a haiku is a haiku. Can you remember that from K4? Um, a haiku is a haiku because it follows a certain sort of... Uh, metric pattern. Uh, iambic pentameter is iambic pentameter, and you can't mess with that. It's going to follow the rhythm that's necessary for that. And then, it, So his point is, marriage is a stable thing. There's a form that when you say, I do, you enter into that form. But within it, there's all kinds of flexibility in terms of how one actually deploys and works out their haiku or their iambic pentameter. There's a form, and then there's freedom uh, within that form. And I think that's the, that's the kind of call that we're, we're called into, into marriage with, with one another. So, um, a few things here that I wanted to say, for, and I pulled this out. Uh, the 1662, a book of common prayer. This stuff is still within the 79 prayer book as well. Why does marriage exist? This is a great question. And I, I want to frame it in two ways. Marriage exists um, in, in terms of its life-giving capacity and its love-giving capacity. Life-giving and, and love-giving. So, so number one, and this comes out in the, in the prayer book of all of our prayer books, um, marriage exists for the procreation of children. In other words, love is not just in the end of the other person, but in the actual potential for life and self-giving. Um, th th there's there's a, a lot of thought that I think probably needs to go into this, especially for Protestants in the West. Um, I remember when Naomi and I were early married, um, I read an essay by a Protestant entitled, A Protestant Rethinks... Um, contraception. Now, I'm not going to go down this road, so don't worry. Um, but I think what was so instructive to me in the article um, was that what has become sort of assumed uh, within marriages is that you kind of, you know, do, do, you do the children thing at your leisure or when, when you're, you're, you feel ready and able. Um, I think this is, a, this, is a, this is something I think Christians probably need to think some about because 
marriage and the covenant commitment between a husband and a wife is not an end unto itself. It's meant to have a procreative life-giving end too. Now that, that also raises questions for, and again, I want to be sensitive to this, for, for families where God in his hard providence has not allowed that to happen. I mean, I think this is, this is the burden that you even see in the Bible where women who are unable to have children um, enter into the suffering of that. That's where our community comes into play and we feel the fallenness and the hurt of that. I mean, we, we want to enter into that and recognize it. Again, though, the overarching um, uh, idea and, and motivation and reason for marriage is, is procreative. Number two, this comes again from our own tradition, it's a, it's a remedy um, against sin. Um, so again, you, you, you enter into marriage and are we all adults in here? Um, and, and you're called to have, uh, you know, the, the, to enjoy the marital bed within the confines of your marriage to keep to help curtail the desire to seek it elsewhere. That's the famous line from Paul Newman, great marriage therapist that Paul Newman was, um, married to, to to Jane, oh, Joan Woodward, who is my cousin. I'm just gonna let you all know that. Um, Joan Woodward is a gentilette. If you kind of, she, she, her mother was a gentilette. Um, in fact, my grandmother used that family connection years ago to get a dance with Lawrence Welk. Kind of, uh, it was it was complete baloney, uh, but she used it to get a dance with Lawrence Welk, which is funny. Um, but what's what's Paul Newman's? Paul Newman was apparently, you know, even teased within in the industry for his his radical fidelity to his wife. And his famous line is, you remember this? Well, I go out and get hamburger elsewhere when I got steak at home, right? Um, I mean, that sounds a little curt, you know, don't, don't tweet that. Um, uh, but I mean, I think that's the point is there's a sense in which human sexuality grows and flourishes within the confines of the marital union itself in self-giving. This, this is why the sexual act itself can't be reduced to the act. It's something that's textured and deeply woven into this commitment of self-giving to the other that requires and demands a lot of time. Um, and I, I want to I talk about this before I, I move on. Um, I wanted to read this to you from Mylander because I thought it was so helpful um, on marriage and time. He says, the great gift of marriage offers a husband and wife in their companionship. The greatest gift is time. Time to work out the meaning of their life together. Time to wake up with seriousness and joy. The task of loving one who, beginning with the obvious biological differences inscribed in their bodies, is so different so other than oneself. Time for God to train them in the meaning of holiness. But in so doing, they are training themselves to think in terms of a commitment that is shaped by the events of life rather than by a vow that reaches out creatively to shape the future. So he's, he's speaking against people that tend to think in terms of the other person primarily in their marriage and not their vow. What a vow does when you make a vow before the Lord, and I, I know you all feel this when you go to weddings. 
When you go to a wedding and you see this young couple, or older couple for that matter, saying, you know, till death do us part, I mean, it's, it's like a thunderclap should happen every time that occurs. It's huge, that covenantal commitment that, that people are entering into together. I, and for you and you only, as long as I live. So that there's an exclusiveness here that now says, we are now entering into a commitment to something that's bigger than the two of us. We're entering into a covenant and relationship that God, out of all of the institutions of this world, chose it to be the primary demonstration to the world of His love of His people, the bride and the bridegroom, um, the Lord as husband and Israel as bride. And the, and the gift that that commitment gives to one another is time. Lots of time to work it out. There's a good book by, haven't read it in a long time, so you know, I'm kind of wary about the giving book recommendations, but uh, Gary Thomas, entitled Sacred Marriage. Have any of you read that? Yeah. Um, line one in Gary Thomas's book. What if God didn't give us marriage to make us happy, um, but to make us holy? And then you just, and this is, I think, what Psalm 1 is all about. This is what I think the Bible is about. And then you discover real joy. Not the kind of ban, banal thing. I don't know if you're like this. I've been married 22 years now. Um, I used to like those teeny romance movies when I was younger. So, and if you still do, it's okay. Um, LAUGHTER but, you know, like the, the sleepless in Seattle thing, you know, where, and I love that. You know, I, I, I play football, too, just to be clarify that. Um, but I, I, I love those kind of things, you know, because there, there's so, we all remember the joy of, of early um, romance. But we also know that the joys of early romance don't sustain people to be married when their hair is gone and their bodies look different. What sustains people for that is the covenant, the commitment to one another, no matter what life, bring, what life brings. And here's the remarkable discovery as a couple grows toward one another in forgiveness and repentance and hurt and joy. When a couple grows toward one another in time, they really do become one. It's, it's a remarkable thing. And the sexual union itself is meant to be a kind of transcendent moment that lives into that oneness that God has called us to live into 24-7. So the, the, the sexual act itself is not merely physical. It's, it's not merely the moment of, of hot passion unleashed. It's much more than that. And it's intended to be much more than that. And when it operates outside of that in, of God's intention, it leads to disorder internally of all kinds. Brokenness. And, and just so that we're clear this morning here, right? We, we, we know that sexual brokenness and, and sexual hurt is, is a part, is part and parcel of all humans in one way or another. I mean, I mean, here's, here's the remarkable thing about the nature of human sexuality, even in marriage. I mean, you think about these, you know, 16 year olds that put on a purity ring, uh, when, and lots of questions about all that, how all that sort of went down. Um, I, I grew up in that world. So you put on this purity ring and I'm going to commit to it. And, and what's the, what's, what's implied in that? 
What's implied in that is if I do it this way, the, the, God's way, then when I get married, it's going to be awesome. I mean, in other words, like I'm going to live into the deepest sexual dreams that I ever had. Um, if I could just do that. And, and what you don't, what you want to sort of hug someone and say is that, listen, you still take your fallenness into your marriage. And part of the joy and the beauty and the challenge of all marriages in our biological differences as male and female is that we enter into all the friction of that for the long haul for God's glory. Um, that, that's, that's why you're entering into this. So number two um, is uh, a, a remedy against sin. And then number three, this is all love giving here, uh, mutual society help and comfort. It's not good for man. It's not good for human beings to be alone. Now, let's say a little bit here about um, our own moment. Our own moment is very much shaped by what Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. Our morality is shaped more often than not than we even know by the imaginations of our of our culture, and we live um, in a modern moment that has rejected in various ways um, basic Christian understandings of moral sense making in the world, which operate this way: number one, according to God's commands, and number two, according to the created order revealed in nature. Those two mutually informing one another, God's commands in the Bible, and the way in which God has ordered creation toward its own intended purpose for, for His glory. Um, the disorder that we see in the world, Romans chapter 1, is the creature saying to the Creator, I don't want you and your ways, I want what I want. Um, and the horror of Romans chapter 1 is that God's wrath does not come in Romans chapter 1 with lightning bolts and the Assyrian army rushing in on God's people. We see, enough of, we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. That's not what happens in Romans 1. What's God's wrath revealed in Romans 1? God giving them over to their desires. You don't want me? Then I will give you what you want knowing that being given over to our own desires is being given over to disorder and brokenness and a fissure between us and the living God. Um, so we're, our, our moral moment is shaped by um, a social and, and religious imagination that really will require, I think, all of us to think critically and creatively in, in, in our moment. Um, can, I, can I make it? I'm going to have to stop. We're going to talk more about this in two weeks. Um, and, uh, and then you can ask your questions. I, did, I really did want to have Q&A, but... Um, <laughs> Jonathan hates a book, Our Righteous Mind. He's an atheist, not, not a believer, um, but he's a fascinating sort of uh, um, cognitive scientist. And, and uh, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, Our Righteous Mind, said, the, our... our our moral imaginations are, are normally developed intuitively and by instinct. In other words, people have a gut reaction to what is right and good and then what is not. And then tend to go and find rational arguments to support their basic internal instinct. 
That goes all the way back to David Hume, for you philosophers in the group. Hume was probably right when it comes to the way in which human beings shape their moral instinct. Um, we have to take into account as believers that are, that are resident aliens in this world. We live in this world, but we're also citizens of another world. If I can use Augustine, we're citizens of the earthly city, but we're primarily citizens of the heavenly city. And we recognize that that basic moral instinct right now is being shaped in an onslaught of ways within our culture that, that is there. We, and we can't get out. You can't escape that. We're in it. And so the call, I think, for Christians, especially in this area, as challenging as it is, as personal as it is, I mean, this is the stuff that's sitting around our dining room tables. It's how you're engaging your children. It's how you're engaging your co-workers who have a completely different way of viewing life. This is our challenge. And, and I, wish it was, I wish we had a different providence. I really do. But we don't. We don't get to choose our hard providences. We're in it. God give us wisdom. God give us courage. God give us grace. As I reminded a group of people uh, recently, no one gets brownie points with Jesus for being a jackass. You don't get brownie points for doing that. So God give us courage and grace and humility to engage and confess Jesus as Lord and to show love to our neighbors as it pertains to these areas because, and I'll leave you with this and we'll come back in a couple of weeks, it's not always self-evident what it means to really love our neighbors. See, this, this is the challenge. We all know that uh, you got to love your neighbor. And then there's all kinds of assumptions built into what that love needs to look like. Again, shaped more often than not by our own social imaginary. But if the canon of Scripture and the Catholicity of the church and the living voice of Jesus through this, His Word by His Spirit is going to shape us, then that's the hard work as well. What does it re I want to love my neighbor. That is not an option. But what does it really look like to love my neighbor? And how does one engage that and enter into that, that hard space? So we'll, um, I'll just sort of leave that there for us right now. And then uh, we'll come back. Um, I'm going to the beach. So we'll come back in two weeks um, and, and talk about it a little bit more. So Lord bless us as we go our way today. Um, and, I, and I pray, Lord, that in the middle of our moment, you'll just fill us with joy. Lord, we, we want to live with your smile on us. And we know that we do because of Christ. And we pray that you will let us live into, by your grace, what you called us to be and to do in this world. You, you want to demonstrate to the world a kingdom of priests. That's who we are, O oh Lord. People marked by you. And I pray that we will do so, Lord, by your grace, effectively, to draw men and women in their brokenness to you. Lord, for the saving health of their souls and their bodies. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.